The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So we're continuing this morning in our series in Mark, and this is part 24. So um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15 today. And in today's passage, we're going to hear about the trial and the resurrection not the resurrection, the crucifixion, resurrection's next week, uh, the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, the only truly innocent man to ever live was not given the same rights as the worst criminals today. When I think of the, the, just a list of people you might, that might come to your mind, um, the most famous criminals in our country's history, a couple that come to mind, uh, this first one is a guy named Gary Ridgway, and he was our country's most prolific serial killer. He confessed to 71 murders. He was known as the Green River Killer around the Seattle area. Never went to trial, but he pled guilty in exchange for life imprisonment, and he is still alive today. He was treated with, in a more humane way than Jesus was. And this next person you'll probably recognize, this is, of course, is Ted Bundy. He officially confessed over 30 murders, um, the true count, I'm sure, much higher. And he escaped prison twice, and he is, um, would sometimes murder multiple people in the same day. And he was finally executed in 1989. But even he received a more fair trial and a more humane execution than Jesus did. It's incredible when you consider the Jewish laws that were broken at Jesus' trial. Here's just a few of them. A prisoner could not be forced to testify against himself. Jesus, of course, was forced to testify against himself. A criminal cannot be tried on a feast day. He was tried during the Passover festival. A trial cannot take place in the house of the high priest. And before we got to the scene in Mark 15, the earlier scene is he's being tried in the house of the high priest before he goes off to Pilate. And then witnesses had to be brought in and cross-examined. That didn't happen, of course, at the trial of Jesus. The court had to prove guilt rather than defendant proving innocence. And, of course, Jesus was not afforded that right. And then lastly, there was to be no striking of the prisoner. And we know how that went for Jesus. So all of these laws, these were the Jewish laws that they broke in their own law code that were broken at the trial of Jesus and why do I tell you all this? Well, as unjust as all this was, it was all still under the sovereign plan of God. And so look with me in Mark 15, verses 1 through 5. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now to give you some background between what's happening between uh, Pilate and the Jewish people, Pilate was on thin ice with the Jews, but also with Caesar over in Rome. There had been three strikes against Pilate up to this point. You know that the Jewish people do not, uh, are not okay with, with graven images and symbols of, of kings or rulers being brought into their city. 
they would see it as an idol or a graven image. And so what Pilate did is he had signs and pictures of the image of Caesar march through Jerusalem to make sure they know who's really in charge. So this was the first strike against Pilate. And this really also upset the higher-ups in the Roman Empire because they saw the people begin to stir in rebellion over his acts and were worried this could become a revolution. And so that was his first strike. The second strike was when he raided the temple treasury and stole the money from the Jewish people to fund an aqueduct project that would go from Caesarea over to Jerusalem. That was strike number two. And then strike number three was when he had shields with Caesar's face on it hung inside the wall of the Antonia Fortress, which was part of the temple complex, so violating the, the, uh, the graven image idea again. And these actions would cause riots and insurrections among the people, and he was being put on notice by Rome that um, he may not be there much longer if he kept this up. And so it was in his best interest to smooth things over and make sure he, he placates these people, the Jewish people in there in Jerusalem. Now, the Jews lived under two judicial systems. There was Roman and there was Jewish. And Rome was ultimately in charge, but they would allow the Sanhedrin, which is a religious court, to decide religious cases. But the thing is, the Sanhedrin didn't have the power to execute anyone. That right belonged only to Rome. So the Sanhedrin, they come along and they arrest Jesus, and they take him over to Pilate, the Roman governor. And then normally Pilate wouldn't be in Jerusalem, but he is this week because it's Passover, and he wants to make sure that he keeps the peace there in the city. It says here that the chief priests accused him of many things. If you go over in Luke, those charges were subverting the nation of Israel, opposing taxes to Caesar, and then finally claiming to be a king. And this last charge was the one that Rome cared most about. You see, the Jews said he claimed to be God, but that was a Jewish concern, not a Roman concern. But claiming to be king would be a Roman concern because that challenged Rome. And that was the only pathway to them executing Jesus. You see, there's a lot of irony in this accusation because what what did these religious leaders want Jesus to be all along? They wanted a political leader an insurrectionist who would come along and, and, and defeat Rome for their, for their causes. And so they wanted this political leader, this insurrectionist person, this Messiah, but Jesus refused that role. That wasn't why he came. But now they're standing in front of Pilate and they're accusing him of being the very thing he refused to be. So there's so much irony that goes through this story And so Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And in his response, Jesus seems to say, yes, I am, but your concept and my concept of what those two things mean are vastly different. And then Pilate says, look and see how many charges they bring against you. And then Jesus is just, he's just silent. He says nothing. This was to fulfill what was said in Isaiah 53, verse 7, where it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. 
And this silence was very confusing for Pilate because I'm sure he had stood before many prisoners before that were about to be scourged or executed. And if someone's innocent, they're usually crying out for their innocence. They want to make sure they set their record straight. But Jesus, as he's accused, he's just silent. And this fulfills what the prophet says in Isaiah 53. I want to summarize for you the next few verses, verses 6 to 15. Every year at Passover, Pilate would release one prisoner at the Jewish people's request. And he believes that Jesus is most deserving. He believes him to be innocent. He believes Jesus deserves this release. But the crowd wants this other man, this man named Barabbas instead. So who's Barabbas? Well, Barabbas was someone who had committed murder during an insurrection against Rome. Again, look at the irony. Barabbas really did the crime they're accusing Jesus of. The pronunciation of Barabbas' name is a little bit different than how we might say it. It's really Bar-Abbas, and Bar means son of, and Abbas, of course, means father. So Barabbas' name means son of the father. So you have this criminal, this person who's committed murder, being released, being set free, and the true son of the father, the innocent one, about to be executed, even though he's innocent. Verse 15 tells us that Pilate has already had Jesus beaten or scourged, hoping that that would be enough, but this crowd wants more. They're not satisfied with that. They want Jesus crucified. Pilate violates his own conscience to satisfy the crowd, and we know he's truly conflicted by this because over in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew tells us some more details. In Matthew 27, it says that Pilate's wife had a dream. In a dream one night, she, something, someone appeared to her, or someone told her in a dream that this man was innocent. This man, Jesus, was truly righteous and innocent. And so she goes to her husband and tells him this, and this is what's informing the way he's talking about Jesus here in this scene. And she believes he's innocent. But because Pilate fears the crowd, and he allows that to violate his own conscience. He allows his fear of Rome and his fear of the crowd to cause him to violate his own conscience. And so he turns Jesus over to these guards. Look at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. They call together a whole battalion. This will be 600 men. Now, why would they bring that many people together to deal with Jesus? They don't need him to be restrained by that many people. He's been scourged. He's already weak. So why are they gathering all these people around Jesus, this whole battalion of people? Well, they're doing it for one reason. It's, it's so they can all mock him and shame him. They, of course, put a purple robe on him, a crown of thorns on his head. We know we don't have to go into a bunch of details about what crucifixion was like or what scourging was like. Many of you all have read those, 
those ideas, and you've seen some, some moves, I'm sure, about that. And I think the Gospels leave those details out because everyone knew back then what that would have been like. But Jesus, what's included here, I think it's important because what's happening here is mocking. They're putting this robe on him and this crown of thorns on him to, to mock him that he says he's the, the, the king of the Jews. Now, when you think about the crown, whenever I think of certain films, except for, of course, for The Passion of the Christ, probably the most realistic of how they depicted this, but a lot of films will just show Jesus on the cross with a crown of thorns on his head, with just some blood kind of trickling down his face. But you know that the, the, the forehead, the head, is one of the most vascular parts of the body. So whenever the skin breaks, it bleeds badly. I can think of a time when I was in high school, I was in a basketball game, and I went up for a rebound, and I take this elbow to the face. It didn't really hurt that bad. I'm running down the court. And my teammates look at me with horror on their faces because I had blood all over my face from one little cut in my eyebrow. Went to the hospital to get stitches. But you know when you get a cut somewhere on your head, it just bleeds profusely. And so I imagine Jesus having this crown of thorns placed on his head. The blood must have just been pouring out on his face, getting in his eyes, in his mouth, down his beard. I don't think much of our imagination really does justice to what the scene looked like here. And so he must have been covered in this way with blood. And so this is all done, of course, to mock Jesus. And so why do they mock Jesus? We've been saying throughout the series that Jesus is either, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Those are really the three options. We, we cannot sit on the fence about Jesus he elicits a strong response in people. People either worship him or they despise him, and there's not much in between. And I think we still, we of course still see him mocked today. There are many prestigious institutions in our country that they'll have a religion department in which professors who study Jesus don't really follow Jesus. It's really astounding to think about how someone could want to devote their life to study someone or something, but not really believe in what they're studying. I can't think of any other fields of study that are like that, where you study science, but you don't really believe in science. And I think of those that study him in this way to disprove his life or just disprove the resurrection or to dis disprove his death. This is really a way in which there's, I think he's still being mocked today. Because Jesus has this way of, of forcing people into a corner. We have to either worship him or despise him. There's not much in between. And I think these people here obviously don't believe that he is who he says he is, and so they're going to mock and they're going to despise him. We also see from this story that he didn't just die in our place, but he's mocked in our place. So when you think about that, how, how might that change our response, when you recognize his response, when he's mocked and shamed, how might that change our response whenever we're mocked for our faith? Look with me at verse 21. And they compelled a, pass they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, 
And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you had destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Roman criminals were forced to carry this heavy wooden crossbeam that would weigh 75 to 100 pounds sometimes. So Jesus begins to carry this, but because he's been scourged already and whipped and beaten, his body is weak. So they bring in this guy named Simon of Cyrene to come and carry this for him. This man Simon is probably coming in from the countryside into the city to celebrate Passover. And he's this this person who's just a passerby, and he is whisked onto the stage, the central, the central moment in history. And he is coming in to celebrate Passover, most likely, and now he is being asked to carry the cross of the final Passover lamb. Whenever names are mentioned, it's significant. This guy, Simon of Cyrene, had two sons, Alexander and Rufus, the text tells us. And some believe that this is the same Rufus that Paul mentions over in Romans 16, verse 13. Paul mentions someone by that name in that verse, and also says that this man's mother is like a mother to Paul. So there's a really good chance that Paul knew this family really well. And then in verse 23, it says they offer him wine mixed with myrrh, and people that were dying on a cross were offered this mixture to numb the pain for themselves. But then Jesus refuses it. Now the question is why? You see, not only does he take the cross, but Jesus takes all the pain that comes with it. We have the the innocent son of God who's on the cross being crucified, and he has full ability as God to kill those synapses in his nerves where he wouldn't feel anything. And people are offering him this mixture to numb the pain like someone else might get who was actually guilty of a crime. And yet Jesus says, no, I'm not going to take it. I'm going to feel this. And so he chooses to feel every ounce of pain that's being done to him. Then after he's placed on that cross, verse 24 says that people are casting lots for his clothing. This is mentioned over in Psalm 22. If you want to read a psalm that parallels the crucifixion, read Psalm 22. There are some that think Jesus may have prayed this entire psalm while he was on that cross. But in Psalm 22, 18, David is talking about people having their lots cast for their clothing, the suffering of the innocent, And this is a prophecy fulfilled at the death of Jesus. Execution back then, of course, was very public. They put it outside the city, so people, as they're coming into the city, 
would be worn. Imagine that today. People are driving into temple and there's people having horrific things done to them outside the city to send a message to say, don't mess with this town. Don't mess with the Roman Empire. This is what was happening there in, in this part of the world, all throughout the Roman Empire. So it was very public. They would, put a, they would put a sign up at the top of the cross, listing out the person's crimes to deter other people from committing similar crimes. And again, there's a lot of irony in this sign. Because for the worshiper, he really was the king of the Jews, but for other people, of course, the sign was meant to mock. Over in the Gospel of John, it says the religious leaders, whenever, whenever Pilate said he's going to put a sign that says the king of the Jews, the religious leaders said, no, don't, don't have it say that. Have it say, he said he was king of the Jews. And Pilate, of course, his response in the book of John is, what I have written, I have written. Jesus is crucified right between two criminals. Why is that important? Well, Isaiah 53 Verse 12 says, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Romans would not subject their own citizens to crucifixion. It was much too brutal, too horrific. But here's Jesus, the most innocent man who ever lived, dying the death of the worst criminals. So he dies with criminals because he dies for criminals. Cosmic criminals just like me and just like you. His only crime is being God. And so that sign's placed at the top of the cross and it says king of the Jews but that wasn't the only crime that was nailed to his cross on that day. Because Colossians tells us That for any believer, my sin and your sin was also nailed to his cross that day. We call this imputation. Where our sin is placed upon Jesus, but our record of debt is placed on him. But his record of righteousness is imputed to us, given to us for those who are in Christ. The word used to describe these two criminals next to Jesus, the word robber can also mean insurrectionist or revolutionary, these men may have been men that were with Barabbas. And they're being crucified, but Barabbas, of course, is set free. In other Gospels, of course, we realize that one of the men on the cross next to Jesus comes to faith at the last minute. The text here tells us that those who were crucified with him also reviled him. I take that to mean that at some point, both these men are mocking Jesus And I just think about that scene. How hardened do you have to be to be dying on a cross and then still talking trash to the Son of God, still reviling someone? How hardened do you have to be to be about to die yourself and you're making fun of the guy next to you who's dying? And so it's an astounding image to think about. But one, of course, comes to faith, and one man we believe does not. Look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, 
There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was, was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Three hours before his death, there is darkness over the land and this wasn't an eclipse it wasn't that time of year but this is a miraculous darkness and this is signifying lament but also judgment remember back in the old testament in exodus the ninth plague in egypt god commands moses to stretch out his hand and and god brings this thick darkness over egypt and exodus chapter 10 says it was a darkness that was so dark it could be felt. This wasn't like nighttime where you can kind of see outside with the stars and the moon. This was darkness. You couldn't see the hand in front of your face. You couldn't see other people. They couldn't even leave their homes. Darkness precedes the 10th plague in Egypt. The 10th plague, of course, being death of the firstborn for those who didn't place blood on the doorpost of their house. And now darkness precedes the death of the ultimate firstborn, Jesus. Nature itself is in mourning for what's about to happen. What they can see, physical darkness, points to what they can't see, which is spiritual darkness. And this darkness that descends down for these three hours before he's put to death represents all the sins of humanity being placed upon Jesus. It's the darkest moment in human history. And after three hours, Jesus cries out, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt this sin, this burden, so deeply that for a time, that even his communion with the Father was obscured. Elizabeth Browning, in her poem, Cowper's Grave, she writes, And Adam's sins have swept between the righteous son and father. This is more judicial than relational. But for a time, Jesus experienced this, this great darkness. And as painful as all this was, I think the emotional pain of taking all this sin upon himself must have been the most painful moment for him. We know about the physical pain, but I think the moment of taking upon the sin of humanity upon himself must have been the most emotionally painful thing for him on that day. And then finally he utters a loud cry and he releases his final breath. But then right there watching it all is this Roman centurion, and he is the one who's in command 
over these soldiers at the cross. And this man has seen many people die. This man knows death really well. He's seen many people die in his lifetime. But he realizes he's never seen a death like this. He's never seen someone so innocent, so righteous, die such a horrific death. This is all new to him. And his statement, truly this was a son of God. Do you know who else was called a son of God? Well, Caesar was called that. So this, thing would have, this statement would have gotten him in big trouble if someone else heard it. But this man couldn't help but see who Jesus is. And then when he sees him cry out and he takes that last breath, this centurion, he is, he's pierced by it. The reality of who Jesus is just shoots right through that armor, right through that hardened exterior of a man. And this person that you would maybe least expect to admit who Jesus is, is the first one to do it. Sometimes the most unlikely people become to faith. Many of the religious leaders, those with all the privilege, those are the ones that reject Jesus sometimes, but most, the most unlikely people recognize who he is. So we have this criminal on a cross. We have the Roman centurion. Even Pilate's wife acknowledged his innocence. So I want to go back to that scene when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the crowd is praising Jesus. And the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and say, all these people are praising you and worshiping you. Teacher, it's time for you to rebuke your disciples. And then how does Jesus respond? Well, he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the rocks would cry out. So all these unlikely people, the centurion, Pilate's wife, the thief on the cross, these are the rocks, and they're crying out, and they're confessing that Jesus is God, that he's the Messiah, the sent one. These religious leaders, they've rejected Jesus. They've accused him. He's been scourged. He's been mocked. He's been crucified. And now he's been killed. And even though his death lacked dignity, his burial did not lack dignity. There's this man named Joseph of Arimathea. I want you to see some names that are in this next section, these next few verses. We see someone named Joseph. We see someone named Mary Magdalene, who was possessed by seven demons. We see another Mary listed. We see a woman named Salome. This is the mother of James and John. And it says there are many other women who came to Jerusalem to see this event. Now, why is that important? Well, Unfortunately, women were not seen as credible witnesses in the first century. They weren't even allowed to testify in court. And so if you're making up a story, you wouldn't include them in the story unless it actually happened. It, it wouldn't have helped a made-up story gain credibility. But they're included here, I think, because this is what really happened. These women saw this event and later, of course, saw the resurrection. But even this man, Joseph of Arimathea, the man who buries Jesus, he's also an unlikely convert because he is a respected member of the Sanhedrin, the council, the religious court. He takes great risk in going to get the body of Jesus and then having it buried 
in a tomb that he had purchased. So I want to go back to that scene in the temple, the moment that Jesus died. And that curtain that was separating the holy place from the holy of holies was ripped in two from top to bottom. In the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement was the most sacred day for the Jews. It was a day of national mourning and national repentance. And one day per year, there was a priest, a high priest, who was allowed to enter into the, that holy of holy place. And they would tie a rope to him to make sure in case he passed away while he was in there, they could pull him out. And so this one man, one time a year, could enter into that place, the holy of holies, on this day of atonement. He would offer a special sacrifice for the sins of the people, and he would take two goats, pure and without defect. There will be lots cast, and one goat is selected as a sin offering, and the other goat is set free, and that's called the scapegoat. Today we use a scapegoat to mean someone who takes the blame and someone who allows the guilty to go free, but here it's the opposite. The scapegoat goes free while the other is sacrificed. I want to read to you how this would play out in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. One is set free, and the other is sacrificed. I think this is a picture of what happened on that ultimate day of atonement. Jesus Christ, the pure, sinless sacrifice, not guilty, is sentenced to death, but this man Barabbas, a guilty criminal, is released, and he's the one that's set free. Barabbas doesn't get what he deserves. I think we can make a parallel here that we are like Barabbas. We're the guilty ones. But for those who believe, he offers us freedom. And when that veil was torn from top to bottom, Jesus makes a way, his death on the cross makes a way for anyone who has faith to enter into his presence and have fellowship with him. And whether your life looks like Barabbas or whether it looks like the life of a priest, we have the same access to the Father. No matter where you fall on that continuum, we have the exact same access to the Father through Jesus Christ. The cross tells us how serious God takes sin, but that torn veil shows us how serious he is about grace and redemption and restoration and mercy. And so if you don't know him this morning, my prayer is that you would enter in. 
that you would come to know him in that way, come to know his grace and mercy in that way. He makes access for you to come into his presence through his sacrifice for you on the cross. I hope and pray that you receive that today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for how you orchestrated all of these events. So much imagery and so much happening right there at that cross. And you brought all those things into clear focus at that one moment in history to say to the world that you offer a way for us to be brought back into fellowship with God, with yourself. God, I pray that if there are people here that do not yet know you, I pray they would come to know you this morning in a life-changing way, in a way that's transformative, in a way that they can only give credit to you for that change. I pray for those of us that are Christians, Christ followers that have just grown cold to this event. God, it wouldn't be just an event in history, but something that we reflect on daily, recognizing that we should have been the one that was there on that cross. But you took our place and you sacrificed yourself. God, help us to see that reality each day of our lives, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.